Pardon me while I set my timer. Uh, since we're going to be going through the entire Gospel of Matthew this morning, it's important that I, that I set this right here where I can see it always. It might even beep at me if, if I'm not careful. This Christmas time, as we're entering Advent season right now, this Christmas time is uh, filled with stories of Christ. And for many of us, uh, they may become somewhat dull because we've heard them so many times. Oh, I know that story. Even if we still get excited about them, uh, we might not get surprised by the level of grace and beauty that there is in the Christmas stories. Again, because we've heard them so many times. I've had something like that happen to me many, many times at Christmas, uh, but I've also had it happen more generally with the Gospels as a whole. As I'll go through a, a reading plan, I've read Matthew, and I get to Mark, and I've had the thoughts go through my head, why am I reading this all over again? Uh, I make my way through Mark, and then I start Luke, like, come on, I just read this twice over, why am I reading it yet again? And then I get to John and think, okay, well, this is different. I can deal with John. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why uh, John is the most popular gospel, (laughs) because it's the most different, and we don't know what to do with the others that seem to be saying the same thing over and over again. Maybe that's not your uh, experience, but that's certainly been mine. But I've, I've been changed from that. I started grappling with the reason God would not only give us one gospel. Why did he do that? And why did he give us three that, that seem to be so similar? And then one that's odd. And I don't have an exact answer for that, but as I've asked that question and gone back through the gospels uh, and really dug in, trying to figure out, so what exactly is Matthew saying? That, that is not exactly like Mark, even though it sounds so similar? Or what is Luke doing in his gospel? Why is he telling the stories that he is? Why is he telling them in the order that he is? Is he doing something that Matthew is not doing and that Mark is not doing? And the more I wrestle with that, the more clear it gets that we have four different, gorgeous pictures of our Savior. And they're, they're not doing the same thing even though they share stories. So what would happen if we focus for an intense amount of time on one and then set that aside and then focus on another on its own terms? Not try to blend them, not try to relate them, but just try to see what each says in their own way. That's what we're going to do this, this series of four sermons, uh, four Sundays in Advent, seeing clearly Jesus, or God in his inspiration, has given us the ability to see Jesus more clearly because we can look through Matthew's eyes at him, and then we can look through Mark's eyes, which are not the same, and then we can look through Luke's eyes, and then John's eyes. So this morning, we're going to go through Matthew. What did Matthew give to us about Jesus? Next week, Pastor Toph will preach uh, through Mark, and then uh, Lou will preach through Luke, And then John will finish it off preaching through John. And then we'll be at Christmas. It's not working this time. This could be a 
We worked out all the kinks beforehand. Okay, kinks are gone. Maybe. Gospel artistry. The idea that all of them are their own piece of artwork about Jesus. I think it's important for us to to grasp, and not just with our minds, but with more of us than that. So I'm going to play a song for you. This is a a classical piece that is not written about the Gospels, but but it could have been. It's uh, by George Friedrich Handel, who did The Messiah. Uh, This one's called Sarabande. It's uh, about something totally different. But it has four sections of the song that do the same tune. But each time he does it, something is different. Something is added. The mood is different. And and I think this is a great picture, uh, of audible picture, of what the Gospels are doing. So we're going to play this song. We're going to pause it after the first one, and I'm going to kind of introduce each of the, the phases of this song. So the idea is they're telling the same story, and you get that but you get it even better because of how they each tell it slightly differently. pause. So that was comparable to Matthew. It's it's beautiful. uh, It's well constructed. This next phase, you'll notice the same tune, but it has a very different tone to it. It's a little more serious, perhaps, uh, or at least more intense, emotionally intense. And this is comparable to Mark. It's a little simpler, but maybe more emotionally intense. So let's listen to the same story, but Mark's version. Ready for Luke's version? Same story, uh, but Luke is more sophisticated in how he writes. He has more themes interwoven than any other gospel, and Luke presents something of a march, not only to the cross, but actually a march through the cross to Jesus triumphing and being on the throne, which is really where all of Luke is heading. So this may sound a bit more upbeat and triumphant as well as nuanced.
right? Are you ready for John? John's different. He is the most uh, blunt and dramatic of all of them with the, the level of glory that he throws at you full force. I wish there were only one of those, not all four, don't you? Or maybe we understand the basic melody and the core of it better because we have four different accounts who are telling the same story, but they're doing it in a very different way that add texture and nuance and emotion that the others, the others don't have. This is the Gospels. So we get to focus right now on Matthew. What, what does he present to us about Jesus? Can we see Jesus more clearly because we listen to Matthew and look through his eyes? And then we'll take the others the next few weeks. I'm going to highlight just two things that Matthew does. Now, it's hard to preach a sermon on a whole book. Uh, you can't exactly preach verse by verse. Uh, I will, so tomorrow when we break from here, no, that's just not even a funny joke. <laughs> really should not do those jokes from the pulpit. Uh, I'm going to highlight two types of things Matthew does throughout his whole, his whole gospel. And, and we'll highlight how he does these two throughout the gospel. And that will give a flavor of what Matthew is saying about Jesus. One of the things that we'll look at first uh, is how Matthew packs quotations and allusions and references to Scripture throughout his gospel, usually the prophets, in a way and a level that the other gospels don't. Now, all of them quote Scripture, the Old Testament, a fair bit, but Matthew does it in an intensity. Uh, and I'm going to show you one example and then uh, that we'll go in a bit deeper into and then show how he does it the rest of his gospel. And the point that I think we'll see is that Matthew is showing Jesus to be hope, fulfilled. So kids, if you're here and are drawing a picture, I think it would be really good to see your picture afterwards. If you can draw a picture of sadness, frustration, difficulty, but then hope that Jesus brings. However you want to do that, I would love to see a picture of hope in the midst of sadness and frustration. Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, which means anointed king, son of David, son of Abraham. Why does Matthew start in that way? All right, genealogy is not unusual. 
uh, in ancient literature, but why highlight Abraham and David? Son of David, Matthew is immediately calling our minds back to promises God has made in the Old Testament that seem to not be working. So, son of David, God had promised David years, a thousand years before Jesus, a thousand years before, had promised him a king that would reign over the world forever in peace. So, Jesus, the son of David, that is carrying a lot of meaning for expectations that have not been met so far. Son of Abraham, even further back than David, God had promised through Abraham that he would lavish the world with blessing so that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. So from the opening line of Matthew, we have Jesus, the anointed king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then you get the genealogy itself. He's already set us up to expect great things. And then you have him through Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah. And Matthew always mentions the, uh, the ladies that were abused or in some way uh, discounted. But he brings them into the genealogy. So you have Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and, and Zerah. I can't read it from that far away. Sorry. Whose mother was Tamar. Perez bore Hezron. Hezron, Ram, Ram, and Aminadab, Aminadab, Neshen, Neshen, Salmon. Salmon bore Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz bore Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed bore Jesse, and Jesse bore King David. He reminds us David is not just David, he's King David. That's important. Oh, but then David goes on. He bore Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Do you notice these are all the kings, by the way? These are the kings of Israel. When Luke gives the genealogy, both of them are of Joseph. They're both Joseph's genealogy, but he doesn't trace it through the kings. Matthew's doing an interesting thing with the the legal lineage through the kings. Luke is giving a a lineage that's more biological rather than legal. This is highly king-centered here. Amon, Josiah, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So he's mentioned Abraham, he's mentioned David, he's mentioned the exile to Babylon. Three massive moments in these people's history. And it's at this stage that that people remember why were they exiled? Why is Matthew bringing this to their attention? Well, they had been sinning for hundreds of years unrepentant, in a cycles of sin, and that was it. God had warned them, and he exiled them. And so from this point on, the exile to Babylon, what about those blessings to Abraham and to all nations? They seem to be totally demolished. What about the king in the line of David? Demolished. They don't have a king on the throne now. So what do do they do with all these promises from the past? to Abraham and to David. Well, the genealogy continues, and there's no mention of the return from exile. You can almost feel the the weight of this if you are in the Jewish experience. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah bore Shealtiel, 
Shealtiel bore Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel bore Abihud. Generations are going. God, didn't you promise blessings, a Davidic king? No, generations keep on ticking by. Abihud bore Eliakim, Eliakim Azor, Zadok, Akim, Elihud, Eleazar. These are not just like a, a year of frustration or a lifetime of frustration. This is, this is representing generations of people being born and dying without God's promises being visible at all. Why is it happening? God, why are you not bringing back the blessings and the king? But it continues. Eleazar bore Mathan. Mathan bore Jacob. Jacob bore Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. When, God, when are you going to do something with these promises? Are you faithful? This is generations, hundreds of years, with you not acting. Can you feel the likely tension, the, I would imagine, despair, the sense of promises unfulfilled? They're, they're now back in their land, but they're ruled by the Romans. They don't have a king. They're still ruled by a foreign people. God, what are you going to do? This is what Advent is all about. It's the coming. That's what the word means. The coming of God's hope arriving. Because Jacob bore Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom was born Jesus, the one called the anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah. That's loaded right there. With that kind of unfulfilled expectations and hope that seems to be going nowhere. And Matthew says right at the beginning of his gospel, let's trace this line, and there's Jesus, the one called the anointed king. Ooh. And then he, he summarizes. Abraham to David was a period of time. David to the exile, and then from the exile, seemingly no difference, still in exile in a way, until now the anointed king is here. Hope has arrived. A hope that, that a lot of us can't, can't really get our hearts around because we've not experienced hundreds of years of our people being disappointed. And the angel announces to Joseph, call him Jesus, Yehoshua, for he will save his people. Feel the spark of hope for, for Joseph at this point. We've been waiting for so long. God has, is keeping his promise. Name him Joshua, Jesus, which means the Lord saves because he is going to save his people. Amen. Save us from what? Finally from the Romans? For he will save his people from their sins. And this is how Matthew launches his gospel. He's setting something up for us. Jesus as the fulfiller of hope that seemed to be going nowhere. Tell me if you notice a pattern in the verses I'm putting on the screen. This is through the rest of Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. For so it is written by the prophet. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
then was fulfilled what it's spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So it is written. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Are you detecting a pattern in Matthew's gospel here? But it continues. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is the one of whom it is written. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And it keeps on going. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So it is written, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. You get in a sense of what Matthew wants us to to know about Jesus? From the way he starts, the very first verse, the very first passage, the genealogy, how he shapes it, and now what he does throughout the entire gospel. There are all of these promises that God has made that have been frustrated, or at least seem to be. For hundreds of years, generations of death, but that time is over now. Because Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. He is the hope that has been long expected, maybe thought to never come, but he's here right now. And everything that happens is fulfilling exactly what the prophets have said. What an amazing message to turn people's attention to Jesus, especially Jewish people's attention to Jesus. So then you get to the very end of the gospel. And it's such an amazing, hope-filled ending to the gospel. This is not the ascension. Matthew doesn't record that. Only Luke does. But right at the end, Jesus has died for his people's sins. He's been raised to life again, all as the scripture said. And then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make committed learners, make disciples of all the nations. Son of Abraham, to whom it was promised the blessing of all the families on the earth, the son of David, who was promised the throne, all authority is Jesus's. Therefore, bring this blessing of discipleship to the nations. Jesus is the hope of the entire Old Testament embodied in one who has authority over everything and is blessing the entire world through us, through, through the disciples, making other committed learners of Jesus' ways. This is one major theme of Matthew. Jesus is hope fulfilled. Think about your own experience of hope or lack of it. Most of us, like I said before, have a relatively small amount compared to the generations of seeming no hope. But we still have very real experience of despair and brokenness and frustration. God, what are you doing? God, why would you not do this? God, why would you continue this? I've been praying about this for seven years. For 50 years. God, what are you doing? 
this is Advent time, it is the time to focus on the coming of the one who is hope fulfilled. That does not mean that he will fix all of our problems now, like he did with Israel. He did not free them from the oppression to the Romans. He freed them from their sins. He healed their sicknesses. But he's not going to free from foreign oppression until he comes back. But the key is that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not the timing of when he takes care of the problems, but the fact that Jesus has arrived, hope fulfilled, and will arrive again to finish the hope fulfilled. So as we muddle through with each other through very difficult times, sometimes for periods of years, let's let's listen to Matthew. Let's look through his eyes at how Jesus is the fullest sense of hope. That's not the only thing that Matthew presents about Jesus as a dominant thing for us to pay attention to. Not only does he show him as hope fulfilled, but throughout the entire gospel, Mark structures his story of Jesus in a way that none of the others do. And it's so fascinating. And it, the way that he, that he organizes the stories teaches us something about a major thing he wants us to know about Jesus. So very quickly, let's take a look at this ancient scroll. That's not Matthew, but it looks really cool. There are two points in Matthew where he repeats an interesting phrase. From that time on, Jesus began to and then he fills in what he began to do. Proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is near. That's in chapter 4, verse 17. The uh, next one is in chapter 16, verse 21. Notice the similar language. From that time on, Jesus began to, to do what? To explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed but rise again. So those two points are kind of like a a turn in the story. Jesus has been doing something before that first statement. He's been introducing King Jesus as the hope. But then at 417, it says, okay, from that time on, Jesus began to do something, and I'm going to tell you about this. So he's kind of giving us almost a title for this whole section of his gospel, and it's all about Jesus' teaching. He began to teach about the kingdom. But then there's a shift in 1621. Okay, now at this time, Jesus begins to do something different. It's still about teaching, but now he's kind of focused, not on the kingdom in general, focused on what he's here to do. So you you could kind of see three parts to Matthew's entire gospel. The introducing our king, our hope. Chapters 1 to 4, then the king's teaching on the kingdom, and then the king's teaching on the cross and victory. But there's more. 
there's, there's more that Matthew is doing intentionally. So let me show you. Under those two headings, so we have the king's teaching of the kingdom and we have the king's teaching of the cross and victory, okay? See if you can notice a pattern in what I put up on the screen. These are all parts of verses. And as it happened when Jesus had finished, 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 and as it happened when Jesus had finished. Do you think Matthew's doing something intentional here? So within, within those two types of teaching, he has these five moments where he summarizes Jesus has been teaching about something, and now he's finished. Matthew has put five blocks of Jesus' teaching, clustered them together in a way that the other gospel authors don't. So like Luke may have some of the same teaching, but it's scattered around a bit. Matthew has collected certain teaching about a similar topic, boom, in one block. And he gathers others, boom, in a second block. He does it five different times. After he had finished these words, when he had finished teaching his 12 disciples, when he had finished these parables, when he had finished these words, when he had finished these words, let me give you a snapshot of what those five teaching blocks are. But this is just a taster. I'm hoping this stimulates you and me to to go back to Matthew with some of this fresh in our mind and say, let me take a look at that a little bit more. So this is a, a taster. The first teaching block, which is about the kingdom, the king teaches about the kingdom, Jesus gives kingdom values. What what is the heart supposed to all be about? Kingdom values. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. The second block he gives is kingdom mission. The king sends out his followers, though only to Israel. He tells them specifically, don't go to the other nations. Go just to Israel right now. Third block of teaching, still about the kingdom, the kingdom mysteries revealed in parables, strange teachings on the mysterious nature of of the kingdom. They're all clustered here. Then under his teaching about the cross and his victory, he gives kingdom discipleship within a community. He, He brings together a bunch of teaching about how you live with each other in a community. When problems happen, what do you do? What comes up? And his fifth block of teaching is the king will return. Here's how you live until then. I want to dig into some of those a little bit more, but we're not going to because my alarm is beeping which means I have five minutes. I gave myself a warning. So what exactly is Matthew doing here? The other Gospels talk about Jesus being a teacher. Mark actually mentions that Jesus is a teacher more than any Gospel does. But Mark barely gives any examples of his teaching. Just two little places that are quite short. Luke probably has the most teaching of Jesus. He has the most parables Uh, He just packs his full of teaching, but they're kind of scattered, probably more when they happened rather than organized like Matthew. Matthew has structured his entire gospel to have these clusters of teaching that are connected to the miracles that Jesus does before and after them. 
Matthew clearly wants us to know profoundly that Jesus is the one who teaches God's way. And he wants us to know that more, as more of an emphasis than any other gospel author does. Do you want to know God's way? I mean, there's so many voices, aren't there? Vying for the, the people's attention in the gospel books. There are religious leaders in the Sadducees who say one thing. There are the Pharisees who say something different. There are the, the Essenes. There are the Zealots. There are the Herodians. And those are just the Jewish groups trying to tell this is how to live. Then you have the, the Greek philosophers. Then you have the Roman philosophers. Then you have the political figures. There's so many voices saying this is what to do to be a good citizen. This is what to do to be a true human. This is what you do to follow God. How do you know what to do with all that? With all these, it's like dogs barking. Who, Who do you follow? Well, Matthew has already painted the picture of Jesus being the hope, God's hope for the world, the king, and throughout the entire gospel, he says over and over, this is the teacher to listen to. Whatever else others are saying, are you listening to Jesus, his teaching on the kingdom? Jesus, the teacher of God's way. So this really captures what Matthew is is doing for his readers, doing for us. We'll look at, at Mark next week, and we'll learn something different about Jesus. Remember the music. You get the same tune but you learn it even better because of the different layers and approaches that they take. We get the same Jesus. There's nothing conflicting about these. But they're also not saying the same thing. And our view of Jesus and our hope and our following of him will be that much more clear and rich and full if we pay careful attention to how God gave us a view of his son through Matthew's eyes as the hope fulfilled and the teacher of God's way. And as we pay attention to God's presentation of his son through Mark's eyes, and then through Luke's eyes, and then through John's eyes. So our prayer this Advent season is that our vision of Jesus will be sharpened as we pay attention to how God has given us four stories of his son to focus us on. So I'm going to pray now to close. And Pastor Dan is going to come up and lead us through a time of communion fellowship to celebrate this son that we hopefully can see a little more clearly now. Father, this world is so full of darkness and despair and unrequited hopes and dreams and broken pieces and abuses and conflicting voices of what we should do and think. Thank you for Jesus as the hope of our lives, both now and in the future, and as the one to listen to. Help us cling to Jesus, invigorate our hope in him, and sharpen our ears to hear his words of wisdom above the din of the rest of us. Please help us now, in fact, right this moment as we celebrate your son, his death, 
his resurrection, and his return. Jesus, we pray this in your name, the King. Amen.